0: Turn your Bibles to the Johannine Gospel, the Gospel of John, the seventh chapter, John chapter seven. Jesus, who was he? Who is he? Can anybody born that long ago be any more than a memory? more than just history? Can we even say with absolute certainty that there was a historical figure named Jesus? In the words of Calvin Miller, not all who examined the evidence will say with a centurion at the foot of the cross, surely this was the Son of God. And yet many of us have said that And hardly anyone tries to escape the fact that there was once a historical figure by the name of Jesus. The record seems clear. Historically, the world has voted. There was a Jesus, a miracle worker, a storyteller, a weaver of parables, one who could even make the lame leap. John tells us that while the Bible admits to 33 recorded miracles that Jesus did so many things, if they were all written down one by one, the world itself would not be able to contain the books that are written as a result. Think of all the names in Scripture for Jesus. Why in the book of John alone, he's called the creating word, the life, the light, the glory of God, the one who's full of grace, the one who makes the Father known. He is the only begotten of the Father, the water of life, the bread of life, the door, the door of the shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way and the truth. In Matthew and in Luke, They trace his genealogy back to the Jewish patriarchs. And the genealogies are very careful to make sure we realize that he is related to King David. And he's baptized by a kinsman, John bar Zachariah, John the Baptist, the son of Zachariah. The outset of these three brief years of ministry, the thunderous clouds say, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Of all the things that he taught, hardly anything was more fascinating than that of his second coming. The great and terrible day of the Lord when he arrives not as a Bethlehem baby, but as a warring judge of all of creation. Listen to the words of the battle hymn of the Republic, calling for that cosmic event. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He's loosened the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. I have seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They have built at him an altar in the evening dew and damps. I can read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps. His day, the second coming is marching on. Jesus began his sermon with that programmatic sermon in his own hometown of Nazareth. He stands in the synagogue and he reads from the prophet Isaiah. This is the words of Jesus' first sermon. The Spirit of the Lord has come upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Then, after Jesus had read that passage, He rolled up the scroll, handed it to the attendant, And he sat down, and he said words that have riveted all of the cosmos. Today, today, these words are fulfilled in your hearing. Meaning, I'm the Christ. I'm declaring the cosmic year of jubilee. Those in Nazareth who knew him so well growing up, they were not hasty to believe that he was the Messiah. In fact, a protest broke out that very day when he said he was the Christ about who Jesus really was. One said, isn't this Joseph's son? Don't we know his mother Mary? Aren't we acquainted with his brothers and his sisters? Isn't he the carpenter that fixed my yoke? Jesus said, surely I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. And all those in the synagogue, when they heard those things, they were filled with wrath because he was claiming to be the Christ, the one equal with God. And they take him to the brow of the city and they're ready to cast him over and stone him. And miraculously, he is saved as God allows him to move and maneuver in their midst and escape. The disastrous crush of public opinion begins that very first sermon preached by Jesus in Nazareth, his hometown. They all see Jesus differently. No two people, I guess, experience Jesus exactly the same no, none of us experience him identically. A children's Christmas carol speaks volumes about the highly individualistic vision of Jesus. Some children see him bronzed and brown, the Lord of heaven to earth come down. Some children see him lily-white, the baby Jesus born this night. Some see him as a judge coming to scourge the nations. Others see him as a lover of children who called the children to come to him. Scholars tend to see him in scholarly ways and preachers see him as a preacher and teachers depict him as a teacher. And then the carpenters among us remind us that he was, after all, one of them in the beginning. Not hardly to our surprise, but tragically, Too often the Jesus that we worship is a mere reflection of something we've created ourselves. Who is this Jesus and what does his arrival mean? The good news means that God became one of us in Christ Jesus that he's no longer separate and distant and far away in the heavens. He is now Emmanuel. He is God with us, a God with skin on. Jesus Christ ended the remoteness of God, the far away nature of God, by coming to earth as a man himself. He is one of us. We don't no longer have to be afraid of God through Christ. We can have peace with God. We've been reconciled. The austere God who spoke to the Old Testament hero in thunder and lightning and smoke is now real and touchable and has scars and bleeds. He is as real as flesh and blood can make a man. Charles Wesley wrote to the glory of God coming in human form in that beautiful Christmas carol. Hark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy bowed, God and sinners reconciled, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, held the incarnate trinity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus is our Emmanuel. God right here with us, that's who Jesus is. Bultman, the scholar, told us that the disciples loved Jesus so much that they wrote him up as more spectacular than he really was. The New Testament Bultman taught is not a cold calculating biography of a rabbi, but rather it's a testimony of believers and so it's a highly privatized account that must be measured, well, taken with a grain of salt. Who wants to stand this morning On the margin of John 7. I don't want you to think about the rabbi. Who is he? The setting of John 7. Turn to John 7 verse 1. Jesus is in Galilee. Those in Jerusalem, Judea, they are seeking to kill him. It's the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, and his brothers say to him, Go on up to the feast. Why don't you do some of your tricks there? You'll gain more adherence, brother. But they themselves didn't believe in him. Jesus says he can't go yet. In verse 11, the crowd begins to ask, Where is he? And then we'll walk through in just a moment all the things they were saying. Some say he's a good man, and others say, No, no, he leads everybody astray. They begin to try to discover who Jesus is while the authorities are seeking to arrest him. In verse 40 they say, certainly he's a prophet and some say he's a Christ and others say he cannot possibly be the Christ. But what do you think of this rabbi? Some thought he was a wine member. that's the word for a drunk in today's terms. Get rid in your mind this morning of that all painting picture of Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the text. Get rid of that glowing halo around his head. Get rid of that flat personality that only allows him to be one dimensional, someone who strives through life, a calm character amongst a cast of flustered extra, dispensing in measured flat tones little words of of wisdom. That's not who Jesus was. Jesus was exciting. People will go without food for days just to sit at his feet and hear his parables and his stories. Sometimes Jesus was moved with compassion and he had pity, had pity over the city of Jerusalem. And other times he was angry and turning over the tables and blast of anger forth from his nostrils. He's one who grieves over the unrepentant city. One who cries out with Gethsemane, Father, take this cup from me. One who cries and weeps at a funeral of a friend in front of his disciples. One that is so popular the people try to crowd in and they hope to get just a touch of his garment. Jesus is much more exciting than you might have imagined. He's a guy who would accept anybody's invitation to dinner. The rich, the lepers, the prostitutes, he'd go and dine with all of them. And some even said, this man, Has a devil. Sometimes he was tired and thirsty and needed a drink of water from the well. Sometimes he was lonely. Sometimes he shouted at the weather as if the weather was an unruly child Hush, be still. And even the weather obeyed his voice. As we approach the text of John 7, remember back in John 5, they were ready to kill him already. They're looking for an opportunity to arrest him and kill him. He needed to stay in Galilee away from Jerusalem to be safe because the Jews wanted to end his life. They'd had enough of his new teaching. They'd had enough of his threat to the social order that they had actually come to enjoy. They'd had enough of his nonsense that bordered on blasphemy. How can he say he has the power and authority to forgive sins? That special relationship he claimed with God. They'd had enough of his growing popularity that people were following him in the masses. It was that time of year for the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And every family would construct their own temporary dwelling out of the leaves, and they would dwell therein for a portion of the feast. It typified the years of wandering in the desert, living in the booze before they entered the land, the promised land, as the people of God. The feast was one that was joyful in character. It was a time of thanksgiving, of harvest. It marked the transition from a nomadic life to being settled down as the people of God in the land of God. It was one of the three big feasts that all Jewish men were expected to attend. The crowd would be great. The pilgrims would be from everywhere in Jerusalem, far and wide. His brothers saw it as an excellent opportunity for Jesus to go and make some new adherents, to do some tricks and, and gather some new followers. But they themselves didn't believe in Jesus and so they're being more sarcastic than they are being serious or sincere. Jesus asserted that he was not living by the chance of casual opportunity, that Jesus was living by a divine calendar He wasn't worried about the time, not meaning that the clock hands were in the right place, but rather it wasn't the kronos, the calendar that drove him. It was the kairos. It was the divine time of God that mattered. And so he said, this isn't my kairos. This isn't my divine time. My hour has not yet come, he's saying. And Jesus makes a secret departure for Jerusalem He tells his brothers to go ahead to Jerusalem. I'm not coming yet. And then somewhere in the middle of the feast, the festival, he arrives in secret on his own terms to the city of Jerusalem. There was a lot of whispering in the crowd. They're asking in verse 11, where is Jesus, that new rabbi, the one who does the miracles? Will he be here? Will he show up? Where is Jesus? The tension was mounting and the text, where is Jesus? And someone shouts, he's a good man, you know. And others say, no, no, he's not a good man. He deceives so many people. And others said, he might even be the Christos. He might be the Christ, the anointed one of Israel. It was all secret grumbling because they knew the religious authorities were out to kill Jesus. And so no one dared mention his name out loud. And even while they're whispering, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and he takes them by surprise. He stands openly there, and the temple, and he begins to teach, and they marveled. And some says, how's he teaching like this? So much wisdom, so much authority. He's never been to Jerusalem University. Don't listen to him. He's not an educated. He's not a scribe. Jesus waited until that feast was halfway completed. And even as the anticipation grows there in the room, Reaching higher intensity, he appears in the midst of the scene. Jesus said, don't worry about my education from me, from my lips, you'll hear the word of God. He warned them. He warned them if they choose to do God's will, they would understand what he was teaching. And Jesus admitted that Moses was the, the lawgiver, but they themselves were not even obeying the law of Moses. They were trying to kill him Jesus said, you're trying to kill me, and they said, you are demon-possessed. Who on earth is trying to kill you? Jesus taught on. The people were all the more confused, and how does this Jesus have conflict with religious authorities? And why why isn't he being censored if he's teaching these blasphemous things, if he's a threat to the nation? The authorities, however, dare not promptly arrest him. Lest they have a riot on his hands, for he was popular with many of the people. If they had an uprising, then the Romans would come in, and that's the last thing they wanted. But this teacher can't be the Christ, someone mumbled. We know where the Christ will come from, and well, we know where this Jesus is from, and, and shouldn't he be from Bethlehem? Of course, they didn't know. And some were saying they knew his parents, and others were saying they knew his brothers. So you know me, do you, Jesus said. You know where I'm from, do you? And they were thinking about Mary and Joseph, and he was thinking about the Father. Jesus' line was always that I am the sent one. I am sent from a heavenly Father. I'm here on a commission to do the will and the way of God. Jesus had not taken on this mission by his own volition. It was a sent mission. They wanted to take him. They wanted to seize him. Look at verse 30. But they did not because his kairos, his divine hour has not come. And yet look at verse 31. Many in the multitude believed in him. Some said, hey, when the Messiah comes, he won't be able to do more miracles than this rabbi, can he? What are you waiting for? How can it get any better than this? They said. They had seen the lame leap. They had seen the darkened eye shine forth with light. They had seen the multitude fed from a few loaves and fish. No one was going to convince them that this rabbi wasn't the Christ. And even as Jesus continues to teach, look at verse 40. And some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, certainly this is a prophet. And others were saying, this is the Christ. Others were saying, sure, the Christ is not coming from Galilee, is he? Some are openly saying, this must be the Messiah. And others said, no, it cannot be. He, He should be coming from Bethlehem, a descendant of David. And, of course, we know that he did. So look at verse 43. So there arose a division and the multitude because of him. That is always true of Jesus. Whenever Jesus is preached, whenever Jesus taught, there arises a division. He's a Christ. He's a prophet. He's a drunkard. He has a devil, there's a division. Who is Jesus? To the hurting, he is the great physician. To the confused, he is the light. To the lost, he is the way. To the hungry, he is the bread of life. To the thirsty, he is the water of life. To the broken, he is the bomb in Gilead. Who is Jesus? C.S. Lewis penned the words a long time ago, but they're still true today. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said wouldn't, wouldn't be a great moral teacher, as some have supposed. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman and something worse but don't come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to give you a third choice. How would sacred historians have described Jesus? They would have written something like this. In those days, one Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter, began to preach and gathered around him certain ignorant fisher folk After the manner of his kind, but all the people of repute held aloof the chief priest with most excellent diplomacy. When Jesus became troublesome, induced a procurator to have him executed. That's what a historian would have written. We all know why God has taken the initiative in Jesus. Jesus came to deliver us from our sins. We all have them. Whether we admit it or not, you shall call his name Jesus, the text says, for he will save his people from their sins. Or the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Or the saying is true and worthy of full acceptance that the Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners or even still we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son as a Savior of the world. Jesus came to save us from our sin. What are we going to make of this Savior? There's no question of what we can make of Him, it is entirely a question of what He will make of us, isn't it? You must accept or reject the story. There is no in between. What he has taught is different than every other teacher. One teaches this is the truth about the universe, and Jesus comes and says, I am the truth myself. I am the way. I am the life. And no one can really have a real, meaningful, fulfilled life unless they come through me. Try to retain your life and you will lose it, he said. Give yourself away and you will be saved, he repeats. If you are ashamed of me when I invite you to follow me, when I return as a warrior judge, I will be ashamed of you. The keeping of the words of C.S. Lewis, if anything, whatever is keeping you from God and from me, Jesus is saying, whatever it is, throw it away. If it is your eye, you pull it out. If it is your arm, you cut it off. If you put yourself first, you'll be last. Come to me, everyone who's carrying a heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Your sins, all of them are wiped out. I can do that. I am the rebirth. I am the life. Eat me, drink me. I am your food. And finally, do not be afraid, for I have overcome the whole universe. Yes, you have to decide. Just like every pilgrim in Jerusalem, listening to the claims of the Christ, Listening to the whispering in the crowd, every one of them had to make a decision that day. And some of you have already decided, some in this great room and some watching by live stream or or television this morning, you've already called him the Christ. And others of you, let's be frank, you have some doubt and it's honest doubt this morning, I'll give you that. Listen to the whisperings of the crowd. Some say he's a prophet. Others say he has a demon, what you might call a lunatic in our day. Others see him as a milk toast, a good prophet with a few good words to share here and there. But you have to choose. Are you going to let Jesus be who he claimed to be? Are you going to put him in a nice comfortable box, an image of him that you have created and crafted by your own hand? What are we gonna make of this mysterious figure who comes and takes our hearts, the one who teaches with no education, but with utmost authority, this carpenter reared outside the philosophical circles, calling around himself disciples, the one who gave a higher code of moral ethics than the world had ever seen before, the one who claimed to be the Messiah, the one who taught, performed miracles for just a few years and was crucified. His disciples scattered, and some were martyred, and yet there are others who are willing to die for what he taught, even today. How are you going to count for him in your heart? What do you think of the Christ? It all comes to this, doesn't it? It doesn't really matter what the multitudes felt about Jesus in Jerusalem on this ancient day in John seven. It doesn't really matter what the Pharisees were whispering or the people were gumbling. It doesn't matter that a few priests thought of his teachings. It doesn't really even matter that the demons rightly said, you are the Holy One of Israel. For you... It doesn't come down to the conclusion of the wise sage nor the conclusion of the most humble pilgrim at the Feast of Tabernacles on that day. History has always been divided over Jesus and it always will. He always brings division when he teaches. Some have eyes to see and some have ears to hear and some have hearts who will be opened and others have eyes but they cannot see and they have ears but they cannot hear and their hearts are hardened the more that he teaches. No, the real question, the only question that matters today is simple. What have you yourself concluded about Jesus? What the rich young ruler thought about him is not your responsibility. What the Roman centurion declared at the foot of the cross, surely this is the Son of God, that won't help you a bit. It comes down to you for one question. What do you yourself think about Jesus? And it is the only question that anybody will ever ask you that is of the ultimate, eternal importance. It is a question of life or death. It is a question of hope or despair. It is a question of absolute truth or absolute lie. It is the only question of ultimate importance. Some of you here in this room and some of you watching by way of television or live streaming, and you have wrestled with that question for a long time. And maybe today is your day of divine appointment to come and declare he is the Christ. Can the Christ do more than this man? Look at verse 43 again. And there arose a division and the multitude because of him. You can bet there was a division that day, yesterday. You can bet there's a division today in our world. And even tomorrow, you can bet there will still be a division over who is this rabbi that turned not only the world, but the whole cosmos upside down. The one that death itself cannot defeat, the one with the empty tomb. In John 7, a line is drawn in the sand, and it makes a big difference which side of the line you're on. I invite you today to step across, to let his death be your death, let his resurrection be your resurrection. Today is your opportunity to join the multitude of John 7 and say, He must surely be the Christ. Let us pray. Oh, God, we come this morning and we hear your word. And yet, whatever the multitudes decided, it comes down this morning, this moment to an individual decision. Is Jesus my Christ? Is he my savior? Oh God, we thank you again afresh new, this morning that you not stay aloof in the heavens, but you put on skin and came down and you bled and you died and you suffered and you showed us the way. In fact, you said, I am the way. You invited us to die with you on Calvary that we could rise with you for eternity. God, I pray if there's anyone in this room or anyone live streaming right now that it would be their day to come and say, I'm a sinner and I want him to die for my sins. I'm a sinner and I need a savior. I'm a man or a woman who's gonna die and I need to follow a man with an empty tomb. That today would be their day. May we have the courage to respond as you call. Amen. Amen.